Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode 397 of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Heron. So thrilled that you are here with me today as I am talking to Barbara O'Neill. This is a very special episode. This is not your normal episode. And it is moving and tender. And I loved talking to Barbara. So please, please stick around as we discuss being women who drank more than we wanted to, and then became women who don't, writers who don't. Uh, As I think I'm going to title this episode, All Ink, No Drink. We talk a little bit about tattoos and we talk about drinking. And um, it's a comfy discussion. Don't be scared. Stick around. Listen to it. Uh, If you're curious or if you're scared or if you're ambivalent, um, stick around. She is such an incredible, lovely person. And I'm so thrilled that we got to talk about this. So that's coming up. What has been going on around here? A lot of nano. I'm behind. And... I'm trying to catch up. I am so predictable in that I say that I'm comfortable moving goals. And many times I am, but NaNoWriMo is a difficult goal for me to move, shift. I want to hit 50K. I'm stubborn. I want to, but that means that it's the 23rd now. Oh, come on, Rachel, suck it up. You can do this. It's the 23rd. I need one week of writing 3,000 words a day. Just seven days. That's seven days. And I think I scheduled Sunday off. Um, I can do that. 3,000 words a day for me is a lot. <laughs> so many. And um, But I'm not going to throw in the towel. I am not. I am on track if I do 3,000 words a day. So basically double the normal nano amount. Um, if any of you are out there who are struggling with nano, if you're stubborn, keep being stubborn, keep going. And if you're like, oh, I'm just really proud of myself for the words that I have written, that is incredible. And in fact, me putting those words in your mouth just made me think of them for myself. I've written 35,000 words in the last few weeks of this brand new book that did not exist three weeks ago, uh, 23 days ago. That's awesome. Well done, Rachel. I'm going to pat myself on the back here. Um, and so that's been fun. It has been It has been fun fitting it into my life. Um Things everywhere else are busy as usual. Oh, and uh, my sister, my little sister, is moving here on Monday. She'll be here on Monday. She's moving in. She's moving in for a few months. I can't freaking wait. I cannot wait to see her and squeeze her and tuck her into her little room behind me, which is the the uh, antechamber to my office. So uh, she will have to use her headphones to avoid hearing me talk all day. To classes and on Zooms and on podcasts. Um, And I am just going to be so thrilled to show her around this town that we love so much. And not in a way like we have shown other um, guests around town. We have done this a couple of times for people that we love. They come, we show them around. We say, this is great. That is great. We love it over there. And we also know that nobody really cares. They're not going to live here. This is not their stuff. 
But when Bethany's here, I get to say, that coffee shop is great. We don't have time to stop there, but you should try that out sometime. Or this is my favorite beach and wait till you walk. I don't have a favorite beach because that's impossible in Wellington. There are so many, but um, but wait till you walk around that corner. I can't wait to show you when we have time. There's just going to be so much time to do all the things. And I am giddy. I'm giddy with it. And I have plans on how to make her little room even more comfortable, which I'm going to be doing this weekend. And we have other fun weekend plans. So um, (laughs) NaNoWriMo will fit in around there. All right. So that's all the uh, writing news on my end that is fit to print. So now I'm going to share with you Barbara's bio and jump right into this amazing interview that I'm so grateful for. Barbara O'Neill is the author of more than a dozen award-winning best-selling novels, including the runaway bestseller, When We Believed in Mermaids, which has been published in 21 countries and spent many months on both the sold and most read Amazon charts, as well as Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and Washington Post bestsellers. Bestseller lists. Barbara is an avid travel traveler and passionate cook and discovered the Oregon coast on a pandemic era trip with her husband. She now lives on that rocky, moody coast in a quirky beach house and writes her books from a room overlooking the sea. She lives with her British husband, who has promised never to lose his accent, and their cats and dogs. Oh, what a delight. Here we go. Please enjoy this interview. (laughs) You can tell I'm just so excited. Here we go. Hey, you're a writer. Did you know that I send out a free weekly email of writing encouragement? Go sign up for it at rachelherron.com slash write. And you'll also get my stop stalling and write PDF with helpful tips you can use today to get some of your own writing done. Okay, now on to the interview. Well, I am so thrilled to welcome you to the show. Will you please share your name and your pronouns with us? Sure. I'm Barbara O'Neill and she, her. I know that you've been on the show and it was probably five or six years ago. I swear. I don't remember when it was, but it was so long ago. Welcome back. And thank you. We're doing something a little bit different today. Something brave and daring and fun and weird um, because (laughs) you and I have gone through something similar. Um, So if people want to hear about your writing journey, please go back to the earlier episode and I will link it in the show notes. Um, but today we're going to talk about alcohol and, oh, yeah. and alcohol related things. So I personally stopped drinking in February of 2018. So it has been, I have not had a drink for more than five years, or I guess we're working on six now. How uh, long has it been for you? It's been a little bit less time. I quit uh, August 10th, 2020 during the pandemic. I think you were a little ahead of me. I know we talked about this, but I was in that stage of like, no, I'll probably be okay. I can probably, you know, I'll just go for 30 days and then I'll be fine. You know, and then I finally came to a place where I stopped for good. And that I think is what I really wanted to talk to you about because there's, um, there's pretty clear cut signs for many people like, you know, full-blown, hardcore alcoholism. You've lost your job. You've lost your house. You've lost your spouse. You've lost everything. So you must have a problem. And for for me, I hadn't lost anything. And most people had not noticed. Even my wife, when I finally told her that I was an alcoholic, and I'm not sure if you use that term for yourself, but I use it for myself. um, She was like, no, you're not. No, you're not. You know, you and uh, so that made it really hard because I had that alcohol 
dependency problem. I knew that. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but I would Google frantically, like, you know, for a couple of years, like, am I an alcoholic? And all of the oh, I links- I think we all do that, right? And all the, yes. And all the links come back purple because you've been there. You've been to that site. You've yeah. been to that site. And none of the Still sites- the same answer. <laughs> <laughs> but none of the sites actually say, um, yes, you are. And here's what you do. They all say, you might have a problem. Might want to check into that. Yeah. What was your experience like when you were thinking about stopping? I mean, it was just like that. I mean, I think for probably five or six years before I actually quit, I really felt like I shouldn't be drinking. I thought there were health problems with it. But like you, I mean, I come from a family, I don't know if you did, but I come from a an alcoholic family. There's a lot of male oh, yeah. alcoholics, like tons yeah. of them. And it was always like this big disaster that led them into AA and getting sober. Like they wrecked five cars or it was something deep and dark and horrible. Yeah. And so for me to be able to walk into an AA meeting with my perfectly fine life, I had nobody, I got the same thing. Oh, well, you don't really have a problem. Everybody has hangovers sometimes, you know, that whole thing, because we are such a drinking society. But I knew in my heart that I really needed to make a change. And it came for me, I did do the 30 days at a time, I would take 30 days off and like, I'm fine now, I'll go back to it. I did this for probably three years, I was on this yeah. merry-go-round of, you know, quitting and starting and quitting and starting. And then some big disasters happened in my family, which led me to Al-Anon, which mm. is the support group for families of alcoholics. And doing the work in there made me think, well, huh, <laughs> you know, maybe really you have to quit drinking. I mean, like for real quit drinking. And it still took me about a year, but I, you know, I, I found a couple of books that sort of made me realize that it didn't have to be that dark, dark thing. I could yeah. get off the boat early. And that's what I did. I mean, I finally found a place where I could, you know, go to meetings without feeling like was, you know, being an imposter, because that's what I would have felt like at an AA meeting in the beginning. Um, yes. an imposter. That imposter feeling, I definitely, definitely had that. And um, the day that I finally said to myself and in my journal, um, basically, basically, I would write... <laughs> as so many of us writers who have struggled with this probably do. Like I have just a couple of years of journals saying, am I an alcoholic? Here's why I'm not an alcoholic. Am I an al alcoholic? And then the day that I wrote, I am an alcoholic. Um, I told my wife, I went to an, my first AA meeting and I called a friend who was 35 years sober. And she just happens to be a really good friend of mine. And, um, but I knew she was the one to call. And she said, well, we're all in the same elevator and we're all going to the same place at the bottom and you just chose to push the button and get off on a higher floor. Um, but right. for me, and I don't know if I've ever shared this anywhere, uh, but I was, I was doing a yoga routine. Have you ever heard of yoga with Adrian? No, she's, she's some famous yoga person who does 30 days of free yoga in January every year. And I'm usually doing it in February because I can't get around to it in time. And I was doing one. And in the middle of the session, she says, like, how can you best show yourself love? And my heart went, oh, I'm an alcoholic. And that's when I wrote it down in my journal. Um, mm. But I realized that I had not lost anything, but I was pushing people away. I was pushing my wife away. I was pushing my friends away. I would prefer to stay in the bathtub with a book and a bottle of wine. And, and then I realized that my dad, 
who is the active alcoholic in our family still, um, kind of, he never lost anything either, but I could see him losing a really big part of who he is. And I felt like I was losing my soul. I suddenly felt like spiritually and emotionally bankrupt, even though I didn't know those terms. Um, So what was, what was that day like for you that you decided to go? You know, it was an, as, as, as it was an ordinary Tuesday. And I just woke up and said, how many times? I mean, because I had uh, gone a little bit further down the road, I think, than you did. And I would wake up with these terrible hangovers. I was was, playing games with myself saying that, okay, (laughs) Um, I would wake up and say, okay, I'm not going to drink today. Um, And my morning self would really mean it. And then my afternoon self would say, oh, come on, you're not that bad. Everybody drinks like this. And I would go and get a bottle of wine or maybe some ciders to go along with it. Because if it was a bottle of wine, it doesn't matter. I had games I played with myself. (laughs) And I woke up that morning and went, how many times are you going to ask the question? And I said, I'm going to just, I'm just going to do a hundred days this time. And then at the end of a hundred days, I started going to, um, it was the pandemic. We couldn't go anywhere. So I found right. some online meetings with a group called the luckiest club. And it was a little bit less rigid than AA. So it was a little bit better fit for me at that point. Yeah. And I just went to a meeting every day at five o'clock instead of going to the liquor store. And at the end of a hundred days, I felt so much better. And it was such a weight off my chest. Um, And I didn't have to ask that question every day of like, am I going to drink today? How much am I going to drink? What is the limit? You know, I just wasn't going to. And so it freed up all this mental space for me to think about my writing and think about my family and think about that's when I started to realize that by healing, like whatever my relationship was with this substance that's so prevalent, um, I could help heal my family and all the people coming up, you know, grandchildren and whoever. And I hope that's true, you know, but that's a step that I could take. That is beautiful. That is really, really beautiful. And I love that it was just a random day that you decided that, you know, I was, I was right there with you. I would make the promise every single morning that I wasn't going to drink that day. And it was always 100% true. I believed it. And by afternoon, I had a really great reason either what, like, I feel great. I'm going to have a drink or I feel lousy. I'm going to have a drink. There's always, always a reason for that. I'm going to watch the sunset in my garden because that is such a wonderful thing. And it actually was wonderful. Journal and have a glass of wine and it was perfectly acceptable and normal. And that would have been great if I was one of the people who just has a glass of wine and journals. But it would never be just that. You know, no, I would tie, I was so controlled that I would, I was able to titrate my drinking perfectly that it looked like going to bed, but I was mm-hmm. passing out. You know, I was totally. literally, I was just passing out, but it was 11 o'clock. So that's acceptable, you know? Yeah. So yeah. tell me what that has done, what stopping drinking has done for, you mentioned this already, for your writing. What, uh, actually, before you do that, what, what um, relationship did drinking have to your writing before you stopped? If any, it may not have. I don't know that it was particularly a big influence or not influence on my writing. I think that it existed outside of that. It existed in spite of that. Um, I think because we set our own hours, like it was easy to keep my life running at a really highly functional level. And there probably were days that I didn't write my best because I wasn't feeling my best 
but mostly the writing. And I think the writing had to do with one of the reasons that I wanted to quit was because it did feel like eventually it would have to have an impact, you know, that mm. eventually I wouldn't be thinking this clearly. Eventually I wouldn't be as creative. Um, and who knows where all this comes from? It's all magic anyway, right? So how was I messing with the magic by imbibing the substance all the time and kind of messing with my brain? Like, I don't like to even take, you know, Tylenol before I work. So there it was this thing. And I I think there had been some things that happened. Um, I think that was a year before Mermaids had come out and things had really changed in my career. And I wanted to be present for that and wanted to be really with it all. And by numbing out with alcohol, I couldn't, you know, I had to like kind of like let that go and feel all the things in order to really be with the writing. And I think it's been amazing for my writing. I think it's a lot easier to get the words down. Um, I'm not as afraid to take chances um, as I have been. I mean, I write commercial fiction. So there's a part of you that's always thinking about like, what will the reader tolerate? What will they go with and whatever. And I just feel like there's some spiritual thing inside of me that I'm more able to listen to if that's not too woo woo um, to write the books that I'm supposed to write, the things I'm supposed to put into the world. Um, Yeah. I I realized as you're you're speaking that I was so used to pushing things away because of my drinking. Like I didn't want to think about the drinking. I didn't want to think about feelings. I didn't want to have feelings I didn't like. And I was really good as a chemist um, because I, I not only did I like wine, but I liked weed and I liked, you know, caffeine. And I liked to always be like, if I don't like how I feel, I'm going to take something to change it. And for me being unable to do that anymore means that I have to sit with those feelings that I have and actually accept them and feel them and let them move through me. And I know that that has made my writing stronger, although I'm thinking about your books and I don't know how, I mean, you know that I'm like, Number one fan of yours since back in the Barbara, Barbara Samuel days. Like, I think, what was your very first book? Was it Lost Recipe for Happiness? It wasn't, was it? Oh, no, no. I oh. wrote Category Romances before that. Um, oh. I wrote Category Romances and Historical Romances all through the 90s. So my first book was a book called Strangers on a Train. Um, I recently went I back that. to a book that like we're republishing some of my titles oh, with good. Lake Union and I was going through like uh No Place Like Home, which was my first big women's fiction. Yes, and I was yes. amazed at all of the the things, the little clues that were in that book to some of the stuff that I was struggling with even 20 years later that now like I've kind of worked with them. So I'm not struggling with them. So like what? You know? Um I think the sense of being a person who was raised in a world where people didn't ask for very much. So coming and being a person who wanted to ask for things and wanted to have like the life that I do have now, it was a lot. And like, I had to step out into that, but I was very careful about doing it when I was younger, like, so as not to step on anybody's toes. And I read through that and I was like, why was I so afraid to step on toes? But of course, you know, a working class kid. That's what you do. You want to keep everybody happy. That's part of the game. But that's why your books, I think, resonate with so many people. You've always had the ability to look deeply and emotionally and be there with your characters. So 
I can only imagine that it's getting stronger and stronger for you. And and maybe that's why your your last few books have really, really stuck with me. I think I sent you an email after finishing one of them just saying, thank you for writing the book I needed to yeah, like spend you. the yeah. time with. I mean, that's what we're all trying to do at any given moment, right? It's write the book yeah. that is going to be what somebody needs at yeah. any point. You know, that one reader who's going to be in the bathtub reading your book and it's going to be something important for them yeah. at that moment. Oh, I love that. Okay. So when did you decide it would be okay an okay thing to talk about in public? Because that's no, that's no mean feat to talk about. I this. actually haven't really talked about it in public until right now. Holy crap. <laughs> yep. I mean, I just decided I had a friend not long ago. It's only been a couple of months who I, I knew that he was really struggling. I saw that he was like on the line and I had reached out to him a couple of times and we just couldn't really, I couldn't do anything. And I am also really codependent. Oh yeah. Yeah. But I knew that I was like, um, I think that's kind of part of the game for a lot of us, but I knew that I, there was nothing I could do. And he ended up, he ended up dying. I don't know if it was directly from alcohol, but certainly there was a lot of things happening there. And I just realized that if this is not something that I feel should be a secret. I'm not ashamed of the fact that I'm sober. I'm I'm proud of it. I'm it's like I'm more proud of it than almost anything I've ever done because it was hard. As you know, this is a society that really, really drinks. And you drink for happiness, you drink for sadness, you mommy wine and hashtag and it's romanticized. Rose all day. And it's so glamorous. I went to a an artist retreat um, a few weeks ago. I went to Morocco. It was a great retreat and it was so much fun. There were all these artists there and the drinking was huge and nobody was crazy. There were lots of people who were really, you know, just fine. Like I really know there's lots of people in the world who just go, yeah, wine just doesn't taste that good today. I'm not going to drink. That was never me. Like I never left a glass of wine on the table. Um, But that it doesn't have to be like this dire thing for you to have like something that needs attention. And I think a lot of women, a lot more women died during the pandemic from alcohol related causes and are still continuing to like the levels of alcoholism and alcohol related problems is rising among women and really rising among older women. So this is like this huge thing. Like there's a lot of loneliness. There's a lot of whatever. And I just want to be able to say that, you know, like, wow, if I, my saying something about getting sober and being okay with that was like one moment of peace for somebody who was struggling, it seems stupid to keep quiet anymore. Right. I love this, Barbara. I absolutely love it. And there is something so true about women and this, especially perhaps I'm only going to speak for myself, tightly controlled women who like to like to hold the reins on everything. And it gets, but, but what, what in our society, when we're romanticizing and glamorizing drinking, what people aren't saying is it's also just a freaking addictive substance period. And they've proven that women, there are some people they've shown that like are alcoholics the first time they have a drink. And I don't think mm-hmm. I was that person. I've always, I've always had, I've always drunk inappropriately, like too much at times, but I was able to not drink for weeks at a time sometimes. But then when I went full time as a writer, I was 44, 43 years old, I think. Can't remember. Um, it doesn't matter how old I was. I was in my early forties 
went full-time as a writer. And I said to myself, I'm not an alcoholic, so I can drink every night. And I never could before because I worked at the fire station and it would stay there for three, you know, two to four days at a time and have four days off. So I never drank every night. I'd never had that. And within two years of having a glass of wine every night with dinner, I was full blown. I would I couldn't stop drinking. It the addiction then caught me, but no one was no, I couldn't find anybody to tell me. Yeah, it's addictive and that might be happening to you and you are now an addict and you either need to stop or it's going to get worse. Um, and yeah. to, to find that and to be okay with that and and to, like you say, not to be ashamed of it. I I am so proud of being sober. And in fact, I reset my sobriety because I smoked a joint with some stupid writers and uh, <laughs> writers will get you, man. <laughs> I was trying to be cool. And um, so I reset my sobriety about three and a half, almost four years ago. Um, but I haven't had a drink in that time. And, and I talk about it. And sometimes I get those big eyes from other people who are like, Oh no, you're not supposed to say, you're not supposed to talk about that. We don't, we don't talk about that. But if, if the writers don't talk about it and the writers right. who are talking emotionally with their readers, don't talk about it. Who's going to talk about it? Right. And I mean, I think there's a real fear of being judged. Um, I know that when I first started going to meetings, one of the reasons I liked the Luckiest Club was because I could go in there and leave my camera off and nobody knew who I was. I mean, shortly after that, you start to realize, well, who's going to even know who you are anyway? And as my husband said when there, he's like, well, if they're there, they're also struggling with this, right? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that's true. But if you like go with the muggles, like I had a friend say, but you weren't really like having trouble, were you? And I'm like, well, you know, yeah, I was. But I mean, they're afraid to think of you in those terms. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of shame around it in that way. But I don't think that we should be ashamed. I think that if we're going to say, you know what, we've been sold a load of goods about the substance. I mean, yeah. it really is not very good for you. It's really bad for you if you're a woman. It's related to like all these different, you know, cancers and problems and kidney issues and stuff. And if you're a moderate drinker, it's probably not a big deal. But if you drink, you know, rosé all day, you're probably going to have some issues with things eventually. And the sooner you stop indulging in that, the better. And it's it's healthy to be sober. It's great to be sober. But you do sometimes feel, and I did feel at that writer's retreat, at the artist retreat, that I was not one of the cool kids. You know, like, you're an old buddy, daddy, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah, I kind of am. But oh. I did find some other sober people in the group. And they're like, come sit at my table. <laughs> okay, we're good. So it's all fine. But I struggle with that. I still struggle with that a bit. I ab- I absolutely do. And I've caught myself a couple of times when I've been in a situation like that, when somebody asks me, oh, you know, you don't drink. I do this stupid thing where I go like, well, I can't because I used to drink so much. It's a, it's a problem. Like I always almost want to prove my bad girl credit. I was never a bad girl. I've been a yeah. good girl since the day I was born. But instead of just saying, no, I prefer not to, it doesn't agree with me. I'm like, I was so bad, you know? <sighs> yeah. So tell I me know. what, what your sober life looks like now. What is what is what are some of your favorite things about being sober? There is one thing that I tell my husband that is one of the things I never thought would be so great. I mean, I knew that I would love getting up without having a hangover ever. Like the you can best. get up and you can have a hang a headache, but it's not related to anything bad you did. You sometimes just have a headache. Whoa, that's great. There's no shame. Um yeah. Right. There's no shame in that. <laughs> I love 
putting on my pajamas at a decent hour with my clean face, my my wash clean face because I've washed it and I've done my dental floss and crawling into my clean bed that was made this morning because I didn't just throw the covers over and into my cozy bed with my cat and my husband and my life and my book. And I will actually like remember every word of the book by the end. This is like heaven. It's it, heaven. My smile like hurts. It's so big. That is my favorite. One of, one of my favorite parts of the day is being in bed. And I always read until I fall asleep and then I wake up and then I turn on my sleepy, uh, nothing much happens podcast. And then she puts me to sleep, but I read until my eyes are falling down and it, and my eyelids are falling down, but my eyes are not crossing. Cause that's when right. I used to stop reading was when I just like nothing or I passed out and but the but the words were swimming the words don't swim anymore they just I just get tired I get legitimately and very really tired oh so are you you're still with the luckiest ones yes uh yeah I still go the luckiest yeah we are the luckiest and you got a, a tattoo I believe I I did get a tattoo I'm sorry I saw paint on my hand from painting today but it's a it's an owl tattoo because it was we um the oldest, wisest, and luckiest. It was all women over fifty who were like we kind of found each other really early in the journey, like that September of like twenty twenty, and just glommed onto each other. So we have this really tight little group. It's probably five or six of us still that meet like pretty much at least once a week, and you know got the WhatsApp and the text group. And it's just wonderful, wonderful. And interestingly enough, one of the biggest groups in within the luckiest club is the over 50 segment, because there's so many people going, well, maybe I want a little bit different something in my life right now. I absolutely love that. And you have that community, that community for me has been so monumentally pivotal. I really went to AA thinking like an asshole that it would just be full of like, Skid Row winos, even though that's not a thing, but that's what I saw. And what I saw in there was you and me, just people like us who have stopped. And then when we moved to New Zealand, everybody was like, well, are you scared you're leaving behind all of your family and all of your friends? And I was like, no, because I've got the ex-drunks and I've got the writers. And as soon as I hit the ground, they're going to be my friends. And and you will not be surprised that there's quite a bit of overlap in that group. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. I know. There is. There's a lot. I am so thrilled to be able to talk about this with you. What would you, what tiny, you, I, I prepped you for none of these questions, so you're just doing beautifully. Um, what's a what's a tiny piece of advice that you would give somebody who might be thinking they want to explore stopping? They might want to explore sobriety. I would say one of the great places to start for me was looking at the quitlet, you know, like there's a lot of it out there now and it's not all like really hardcore stories. There's a lot of, um, what is it? The sober diaries with Claire Pooley and she was this housewife in England and she caught me. I was like, wait a minute. She has a perfectly normal life. Um, this is a really good place to go. Well, maybe, maybe this is helpful. Maybe I don't have to be, you know, down and out in order to stop drinking but I think quit like it is a great place to go. I think giving it a try for 30 days at a time shows you kind of where you are with things. Um, and just finding a group of people that you can talk about this kind of stuff too. I know at the luckiest club, which is an online group and it does cost money. And, and you know, that's always one of those disclaimers that, um, 
there's people there who are trying and stopping, stopping and starting, you know, going back and forth. So there's no shame in that process if you're looking for that. But um, yeah, those are the things I would say to start with. Yeah. Um, I love the Quitlet. I, I, w- I used to spend more time on Instagram, but um, hashtag sober AF is good. Hashtag sobriety mm. is good. Like if you follow some of those hashtags, then those people will come through and they'll be talking, talking kind of with you about it. I like, right. I like that too. Instagram, TikTok, both. There's lots of, there's lots of hashtags about sobriety on those. Yes. Now let's bring it back to writing. Can you please tell us about the most recent book, which is the Starfish Sisters, which I loved. The Starfish Sisters is about two friends who were, who were, who met when they were 12 and they met on the beach and the Starfish Sisters are actually not the women, but the sea stacks that they, uh, live around in Oregon, which is why I moved um, because I fell so in love with Oregon during the course of writing this book. Um, but one is a famous actress and the other is an artist and illustrator. And they've had a lot of tension over the years, but they come back together and are trying to work out the past. And there's a thread of mystery, a little mystery and some romance and a granddaughter who's adorable, who might be sort of loosely based on someone I know. What's great. I love this book, actually. I really loved writing it. And I really love the characters a lot. You do so much with the sister relationship, with the mother-daughter relationship. And those are always my core stories. And that's why I will keep coming back to you forever for this kind of thing. I hope so. Thank you. Where can we find you online? Uh, BarbaraO'Neill.com uh, is my website. And you can get to all of the other places that way through Facebook and Instagram, all those places. I can't thank you enough for this awesome, beautiful, and important conversation. Thanks for being brave enough to do this with me. I really appreciate you. Thanks so much for having me, Rachel. It really did mean a lot to me too. I'm glad we could talk about it like this. It was great. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of How Do You Write? You can reach me on Twitter, Rachel Heron, or at my website, rachelheron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelheron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends. <laughs>